Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. One of the things that I have found working and writing in the pro-life and pro-family movement is that a lot of people don't really have a sense of the pro-life movement's history. In fact, you're actually a lot more likely to hear a pro-life activist uh, talk about the civil rights movement as the predecessor to today's pro-life movement than you are to hear people talk about the pro-life movement that existed prior to Roe v. Wade. There's also this sort of generic historical understanding, and it's it's become almost the consensus understanding among historians uh, that, quite simply, the pro-life movement was a reactionary movement, that when Roe v. Wade legalized abortion in the United States in 1973, uh, in all 50 states, uh, basically that the, the pro-life movement was a reaction, a response to that event, as opposed to something that had existed uh, prior to that event. And this is not the case. Interestingly, I think that one of the reasons people ignore the history of the pro-life movement prior to Roe v. Wade is because a little bit of research soon reveals that one of the pro-abortion movement's fundamental talking points is total nonsense. And that talking point is this idea that a move towards legalizing abortion, not only in the U.S., but around the Western world, was a fundamental rejection of the sort of medieval dogma of various religious groups, when what a study of the pro-life movement prior to Roe v. Wade reveals is that the first pro-life laws were actually passed in the 1800s in response to the discovery of doctors that life began long before this so-called uh, event of quickening, which is when the mother could first feel the baby in the womb, and that as such, those human beings in the womb deserve protection under law. So pro-life laws were actually a replacement uh, for uh, religious beliefs that were referred to uh, by many theologians concerning quickening and a response to new scientific discoveries, which basically means that the claim you get from abortion activists is not only not the case, but is pretty much the opposite of the truth. So to dig into this history that I've discovered most people don't know, I called uh, Dr. Daniel K. Williams, who's a professor of history at the University of West Georgia. He's the author of two books published by Oxford University Press. The first is God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, which came out in 2010. And the second is Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2016. I found this book to be just incredible. I, it was packed with information I had been totally unaware of. And so to share that story with all of you, the story of the pro-life movement, which stretches back long before abortion was legalized, I want to present to you this conversation with Dr. Daniel K. Williams. All right. Uh, well, just to get started, I guess, what what interested you in a project uh, on the history of the pro-life movement prior to Roe v. Wade? I initially planned to write a more comprehensive history of the pro-life movement, and I thought that the pre-Roe story might be the first chapter, uh, a relatively short chapter in a longer book. But as I got into the archives, as I started uh, reading more about the pre-Row movement, I realized that there was a story that was never told, uh, and that the pre-Row story was so interesting that it deserved a book of its own. In particular, what I found is that the pre-Row movement was much more vibrant 
and much more successful uh, than previous historians have realized. In fact, most people in the pro-life movement are not even aware of this history, I think. And perhaps even more intriguingly, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade was largely a liberal movement, a movement that was rooted in uh, the human rights ideology uh, of the post-war era, of uh, post-war liberalism. And most pro-life activists, uh, more than half, I would say, uh, were Democrats. Many of them were, most of them were Catholics, and many of them uh, were rooted in the social justice traditions of the Catholic Church uh, and committed to uh, New Deal liberalism and, and great society liberalism of uh, the 1930s through 1960s. So just to uh, kind of frame this conversation, maybe uh, give our listeners a bit of a, of a chronology, because you start your book all the way back in the in the 1860s. So if you could just give us a bit of a, of a chronology so uh, people can understand just how much actually happened prior to Roe v. Wade and where it all began. Sure. Uh, well, in the early 19th century, uh, the first uh, abortion laws, uh, the lo- first laws restricting abortion were passed uh, in England and the United States. And my book focuses on the uh, the U.S. side of the story. And so during the 19th century, uh, doctors, most of whom were Protestants, lobbied state legislatures for uh, restrictive abortion legislation. Before that, uh, there's there's some historical debate as to what the abortion policies were, uh, abortion largely fell under uh, understandings of the common law, and so it was up to local judges to decide what to do about abortion cases. But faced with uh, evidence of rising rates of abortion in some large American cities at the time, and also faced with medical evidence they believed showed that uh, fetal development was continuous uh, from the point of conception onward, uh, and therefore life deserved to be protected from uh, the point of conception, uh, they lobbied for laws that would restrict abortion in most cases, uh, but perhaps allow for abortion uh, in cases that were necessary to save a woman's life, which tragically uh, was not necessarily an uncommon occurrence uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and those laws remain on the books uh, up until the mid-20th century with relatively little uh, dissent. Uh, there were plenty of ways to evade the law, and there were people who, who did that, but uh, both doctors uh, who provided uh, abortion services uh, that, that might have been illegal and uh, people who were not doctors, uh, licensed medical professionals also offering abortion services. But the first real debate about the abortion laws started uh, in the 1930s. And during that time, uh, some doctors argued that the abortion laws were not working, that they were not deterring women from having abortions and therefore uh, they should be revised. And essentially, they made a utilitarian argument, an argument that uh, if you follow the greatest good for the greatest number, uh, you would uh, liberalize the abortion laws for the sake of, of saving uh, women's lives, who might, uh, women who might otherwise die uh, in dangerous uh, procedures, back alley abortions, or even uh, self-abortions. Uh, and Against this argument was arrayed a group of Catholic doctors, mostly Catholic doctors, who argued on human rights grounds that uh, 
human life was inviolable, that there was an inalienable right to life, and that if, uh, from a scientific or medical perspective, you could make a case uh, that human life began at the point of conception, therefore, uh, the laws not only had to be preserved, but perhaps even to be strengthened and enforced. And so this debate continued um, up until the 1960s. Uh, and then in 1967, the pro-life doctors started to lose the debate. Uh, a number of states, about 13 uh, before Roe uh, passed between 1967 and the early 1970s, liberalized abortion bills that allowed for abortion uh, in limited cases, that is, in cases such as rape and incest, uh, suspected fetal deformity, um, dangerous to a woman's health. And so they were expanding the right, the right to an abortion, but, but not granting an absolute right to an abortion. And then in 1970, four states, uh, the major one of which was New York, uh, legalized elective abortion, that is, uh, abortion at a, a woman's request without any uh, medical reason having to be given. And that in turn set in motion a contest that still exists today, a debate uh, that is ongoing, a debate between people who believe that life uh, begins at conception and therefore should be protected in public law, uh, and those who believe that uh, abortion is a, uh, a civil right. Uh, that they, and so this contest of rights uh, that was set up uh, at the beginning in the late 1960s or uh, early 1970s uh, has only grown sharper uh, over the last few decades, and uh, we're still faced with that debate today. So I want to back up uh, just just a little bit because one of the things that I found the most fascinating reading through your book was the number of misconceptions that we have based on the fact that both sides of the abortion debate are unaware of what the discussion looked like prior to Roe. And so I just want to read you a, a short passage here and then, and then get your take on it. Um, you write uh, in Defenders of the Unborn, prior to the early 19th century, a number of Protestant doctors convinced state legislators that the medical science proved that biological life began long before quickening, which meant, in their view, that abortion should be prohibited at any stage of fetal development. By the end of the 19th century, legislators in nearly every state had enacted laws which allowed abortion only in cases in which the procedure was required to save a woman's life. The physicians behind this effort also embarked on an education campaign to convince the public of the value of fetal life. Armed with cases of glass slides showing the fetus at various stages of development, they traveled to libraries and civic groups across the country to spread the message that human development proceeds along a continuum, that quickening is a biologically meaningless stage, and that the embryo deserves protection from the moment of conception. Now, the interesting thing about that passage is that it sort of blows up the myth-making of the 60s and early 70s that still exists to some degree today. Uh, Abortion activists will state that the legalization of abortion in the United States and across the Western world is actually um, 
a enlightened society's decision to toss out the medieval dogmas of, of usually the Catholic Church as the target that they choose. Whereas in your book, you reveal that it was um, religious dogma that wasn't grounded in science, because the science was unknown to many at that point, that informed the uh, sort of loose abortion restrictions, and that it was scientific discoveries which prompted the original abortion laws to begin with. Yes. Uh, I, and I think that is an important, that is important to note. Um, so... Regularly, I think, in the abortion debate, uh, people who are on the pro-choice side will say that those who oppose abortion uh, do so only because of religious grounds, uh, and therefore the, the assumption is if, if you support abortion rights, it, it would be on uh, for reasons of, of uh, they would say, common sense, uh, commitment to human rights, that sort of thing. But in reality, what we're looking at is um, a contest of two different philosophical systems. Uh, and I think that the pro-life movement has has always claimed uh, to have science on its side. Now, as I think we both know, uh, science is not is not neutral. Uh, the, our understanding of, of scientific principles is always going to be informed by a particular worldview. Right. And so I think there, there are certain scientific facts that that everyone uh, who looks at the evidence, I think, could agree with. One one of those is what these doctors were pointing to, that is continuous development from embryo, or as we might even say today, zygote, uh, all the way to birth. Uh, that is, there's there's no one point uh, in those nine months of pregnancy where we can say, aha, this is this is the moment where we can clearly see. Uh, a human person beginning. It's rather this continuous development, and they were saying, if that's the case, then uh, this this distinction in common law that had sometimes been made that actually goes back to a misunderstanding uh, that originated, I think, with Aristotle. Um, I think he was probably the first to come up with this, though it's possible Aristotle borrowed it from someone else. But in any case, um, medieval scholastic theologians received their ideas from Aristotle uh, that was that. Uh, some sort of what Aristotle would have called animation, what uh, medieval theologians would have called insolment, occurs at, at some weeks after conception. And in common law thinking, that was translated into the moment of quickening, the moment when a woman uh, perceives fetal movement uh, uh, within her. But as the doctors pointed out, and as, as I think most people today, even maybe pro-choice people would agree, um, that that's not a that's not a medical medically precise stage um, of pregnancy. There's nothing within the fetus that actually changes at that point, the point where a woman can a pregnant woman can perceive fetal movement within her. And so the doctors were saying, if that's the case, uh, then then you can make this compelling argument uh, that that uh, human life actually begins uh, at the point of conception. And the, the problem that we run into today, I think, in this abortion debate is that what we're really talking about is not so much the point at which human life begins, though that's often the way it's phrased, but we're really talking about the point at which human personhood begins. Uh, at what point do we begin to to treat uh, this fetus or, or embryo uh, as a as a person with human rights, 
And the point that the that the doctors of the 1930s were making is that there's uh, there's no and that pro-lifers have made since then is that uh, we don't we shouldn't really have a category of human life that's not a human person. That when we try to do that in law, uh, the re, the result is is uh, an exclusion of a category of human beings from the from the rights of personhood, and that uh, if we can show that that uh, the the fetus has all of the uh, all the potential to develop into a a, a full uh, a, a person with full cognitive abilities. A, a, Person who shares you know, all the characteristics that we would accord a, a human person, uh, then, then we should treat that uh, not as as a, an entity without rights, but rather as a, as an entity as a as a human being uh, with rights. And so they would appeal to science to then support uh, that that philosophical claim. And it appears from your research that there wasn't much of a debate when the Protestant doctors, uh, the largely Protestant doctors, as you put it, um, did these tours where they had these glass slides showing people what uh, fetal development looked like as far as they could discern and display, um, that basically the argument they were making was like, look, this is a human being, ergo this human being should be protected by law. It doesn't seem like that was a particularly controversial thing. It was, if you can prove it's a human being, then it deserves protection. Um, at least that's how I read it. Am I reading that correctly in your book? Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, what what changed, so we might say, well, why was, why was this not that controversial in the 19th century? Why did it become controversial? And I think um, that... What changed in the mid 20th century was, first of all, the realization, the, the belief that many people had that these laws were not working, and that was that was one uh, one thing that changed. Um, another was the the increased desire that people had to control their fertility, which uh, was not nearly as prevalent in the the mid 19th century as it was later. And and finally, in, in terms of the modern debate, what began in the uh, in the mid to late 1960s and accelerated in the 1970s is a uh, second wave feminism, uh, a women's a women's rights movement that uh, placed enormous value on uh, reproductive control, um, including after the point of conception, uh, as well as before. And so when we have so we have a contest of rights now that I don't think was evident in the 19th century. In the 19th century, uh, for much of the 19th century, even information, uh, at least from the 1870s onward, even information about uh, contraception was illegal to distribute through the public mail system. Uh, so it was a, it was a different time in terms of uh, sexual ethics and and under and public values concerning reproduction. And so, if that was the case, then debates about abortion um, might be much uh, more muted uh, than they are today, and in fact, might even be non-existent. So, uh, in these state legislatures, no, I, I didn't see evidence of the sort of modern, uh, highly charged debates uh, that we would have today over over abortion legislation whenever it's introduced. Uh, but that's that's not surprising. 
um, because it was a different cultural context. And right. so medical uh, discussions about fetal life could be held without necessarily bringing in all the other factors that might uh, bias those debates in one fashion or another today. So was anybody making the argument when, when they said these laws aren't working, were they just making an argument that women were seeking out self-abortions or back-alley abortions, or were they pointing to the fact that a lot of the history now, some of the history which you cover and some which is covered in other books, indicates that there was a two-tiered system where if you were rich enough, you could get an abortion, and if you were poor, you, you couldn't afford one or might resort to dangerous means. So there's the famous example of Madame Restel in, in New York City, who famously had an enormous mansion um, where the daughters of the rich could come if they wanted to have abortions. And she once claimed, and nobody contradicted her, that she had single-handedly kept the birth rate in New York City down for almost a decade. Um she eventually committed suicide when she was put on trial uh, for being an abortionist. Um, but was anybody just making this argument that, look, these laws are just ensuring that the rich get uh, get abortions and the poor don't? Because that argument is still, of course, used today. Right. Uh, I I do think that argument was used a little bit. Um, it, not as, it was not as prevalent. That, that argument was not as common as it became say, in the 1960s and afterwards. So in the 1930s, I, I can see a little bit of evidence of it, though there were other arguments that were perhaps more important. I can see that argument um, emerging more in the 1960s and and afterwards, um, especially as concerns about uh, equal treatment under law uh, and concerns about the favors the rich might be getting were became more common. But uh, it is true that there was a different a difference between what the rich were able to get and what the poor could be able to get. Uh, one of the things that's not uh, perhaps noted enough uh, in histories of the abortion debate that should be noted is that the probably the most common way to get abortions or one of the most common ways to get abortions uh, that didn't con- correspond to the law would would be, and this is something that, that only the privileged would have access to, would simply be to ask a doctor that is a licensed medical professional to provide that abortion for you. And those medical judgments were very rarely questioned, hardly ever. Um, would a, a licensed medical professional um, be questioned by the law? Uh, and if they were, uh, it would be extraordinarily difficult to prosecute because, of course, the law did allow for exceptions. Uh, and it would be very difficult to prove uh, against a doctor's testimony in court that, that those exceptions had not been followed. So, uh, there, there are numerous examples, uh, including the daughters of prominent politicians. Uh, Barry Goldwater's daughter, for example, had an abortion uh, in 1955. It was not a back alley abortion. It was, it was a regular hospital abortion. And so uh, those, those cases were quite common. Um, but then for those people who didn't necessarily have those connections, there were um, what we might call the back alley abortions. Uh, and oftentimes... Those were connected with organized crime, uh, especially in New York City. Right. Criminal syndicates ran uh, large-scale abortion operations, and usually they had, they were staffed by people who were second-rate medical professionals. That is, maybe people who hadn't finished medical school couldn't get a doctor's license, and so they had some ability. They could, uh, you know, they they were proficient enough to, uh, to to allow you know the. To, 
to do semi-safe procedures on the vast majority of women who came, but of course there was always a bit of a risk. Sometimes, uh, a lot of times, outright exploitation. The testimonies are numerous from the mid-20th century of doctors who asked uh, for sexual favors from young women in exchange for these abortions. And of course, since it was an illegal procedure, uh, it was very easy to manipulate the people who came in. Uh, it was it was a very unsavory practice. And so, um, the argument was uh, in the 1930s that just as, and this is an analogy they almost always made, just as the recent experiment in the United States of Prohibition had been a failure, it had not uh, stopped people from drinking uh, alcohol, so the abortion laws were also a failure, and they were contributing to the growth of organized crime. They were hurting women, uh, that that women's health would be improved, uh, society would be better off if we could just legalize this procedure, or at the very least, usually what they argued, which is kind of similar to um, America's drug debates, they uh, they argued that you know we wouldn't provide full scale legalization. There would be state regulation of this procedure, and that would be far better than having an illegal industry that's currently unregulated. Yeah, interestingly, one of those uh, uh, untrained medical professionals providing illegal abortions was actually Frank Sinatra's mother, uh, who was a nurse. Her nickname was Hatpin Dolly. Um, and she was quite famous for doing this sort of thing. And if you look at the lives of uh, of of even the American uh, literary literary elite during this pre row period, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife aborted their second child. Um, there's a you know Frankie Sinatra lost two children to abortion. Uh, the list the list goes on and on, um, including John Steinbeck, who forced his wife and his first wife into an abortion before abandoning her, marrying somebody else, and then. Uh, and then having children um, with his second wife while his first wife was rendered infertile as a result of the procedure. Um, but when, 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 I, when I was reading through your book, I think one of the, the really interesting things that, that also gets ignored by both sides for obvious reasons, so the first, the first obvious fact is, is that abortion laws were brought in as a result of new scientific discoveries rather than adherence to religious dogma. The second very interesting misconception that your book um, sort of uh, explodes is is the idea that abortion is a, a, an explicitly conservative and religious issue because the point you make is that it was progressives, Democrats, liberals, I don't know which word would, these words are all now far more inflammatory than they were back then uh, due to their current political associations, but essentially that these were people of the left um, who were doing this for often very left-wing, human rights-oriented reasons, and that it wasn't until later that abortion became associated with, with the right-wing explicitly. Yes. Yes. Uh, the doctors who, the, the Catholic doctors who opposed uh, calls for the legalization of abortion in the 1930s and in the 1940s uh, were, strong, were, for the most part, strongly supportive of the New Deal. And they argued uh, that just as President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal had demonstrated uh, compassion for those who are out of work, for the less fortunate, so in the same way, their campaign was motivated uh, by that that principle, and that continued uh, into the 1970s. Uh, the the because the vast majority of people in the early pro life movement, that is the pro life movement from the 1930s to the 1970s, uh, were were Catholic with a handful of people, maybe 15% or so of the movement, uh, coming from uh, Protestant denominations and, and uh, a handful of, of uh, uh, pro-life Jews as well contributing. But the vast majority were Catholic. And so they were drawing on a, a body of Catholic social teaching 
that essentially pictured the government as having obligations to care for all of its citizens. And they argued that the calls for abortion legalization were actually motivated by a utilitarian ethic that would undermine the entire system of, of social justice that they believed uh, modern, Ameri- modern liberalism was based on. Uh, so if you could, if you believe you could solve social problems by denying rights to a certain class of people, simply deciding that they were no longer people, uh, or uh, deciding that their rights were less uh, valuable than the rights of others, that 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 was precisely the the type of claim that would that would undermine uh, a compassionate society that that they believe liberalism was working toward. And so, what they they recognized that there were problems of poverty. They recognized that there were problems of injustice, and they believed that those problems uh, could be solved not by uh, expanding abortions legal availability but by providing help to uh, women who are facing crisis pregnancies by providing expanded uh, prenatal health insurance pre- expanded social welfare benefits uh, reform of the adoption laws to make adoption easier uh, a host of, of legislative changes that they believed uh, would would create this sort of compassionate society that they envisioned rather than uh, a society um, that would simply, they believed, uh, perpetuate poverty or, or deny the rights of the poor, or in the worst case, even coerce the poor into having abortions in order to uh, remain on the social welfare rules, uh, a prediction that they believed you know, would, would be fulfilled in the imminent future if, if uh, abortion was legalized. So to kind of trace the ideological shift of of the pro-life movement from one end of the spectrum uh, to the other, um, I, I did a bunch of research into when exactly uh, the, the pro-life Democrats, um, the initial pro-life Democrats, shifted towards the pro-choice position because you have the only thing John F. Kennedy ever said uh, was it was a negative comment about abortion, although it's likely that a few uh, Kennedy kids end, ended up... Um, uh, at an abortion clinic, um, the you've got uh, Ed, uh, Teddy Kennedy who who once wrote a very pro life letter uh, to a constituent and was quite firmly well. He basically uh, he held the Catholic line on the issue. Um, uh, Bobby Kennedy, which I, I think it's fair to call him the sort of symbol of liberalism, um, actually announced his support for abortion rights just prior to his assassination uh, in in Los Angeles. And in order to kind of find out where liberals, especially Catholic liberals, began to adopt this new line that we will we used to hear from people like like Joe Biden, which is that, you know, I personally oppose abortion, but I don't believe in imposing my morality on a national level or from a government perspective um, that traces back to a 1964 meeting at the Kennedy compound. Uh, in Maine with both the Shrivers and the Kennedys and a handful of, of liberal Jesuit theologians persuaded them, actually, that it was ethical and moral to oppose abortion personally while supporting it uh, as a matter of public policy. When, uh, in your research, did you find this shift sort of start to take place, uh, that the abortion issue began to shift from one end of the political spectrum to the other? Well, I would say it was after 19, it was long after 1964. Um, so if um, 
if that discussion was going on in 1964, there were some other discussions I think that took place later that may have changed things. Certainly, the Shrivers um, remained pro-life, yes, uh, public, publicly involved in the pro-life movement well into the 1970s. Though uh, by 1976, things were changing. I think this shift occurred in stages. Um, so the the first stage, I think, was Roe v. Wade. Uh, before Roe, it was easier for Democrats to be pro-life because neither party had yet taken an official stance on the issue. It was not viewed as a partisan issue. In fact, I think before 1973, Democrats were largely more likely uh, to oppose abortion than Republicans. Uh, but there was a contest in the Democratic Party between uh, two groups of people who, who grounded their claims in human rights, that is, uh, pro-choice people who, uh, by 1973, were largely grounding their claim in the absolute rights of of, of uh, feminism, the the claim that that a woman had the right to control her own body, a woman had the right to equality, and then of course on the other side there was the the pro life movement uh, with its its claim to the absolute right to life. And so, if you had this contest between two groups of between two groups each claiming the mantle of human rights, it was easier simply not to take a position. But once the Supreme Court took a position, actually decided in favor of one set of rights as opposed to another set of rights, it was uh, one could essentially settle the debate, which they tried at the 1976 Democratic Convention, by essentially just endorsing the status quo, saying uh, in 1976, not not adopting a strong endorsement of abortion rights, as the Democratic Party would later do, but instead simply saying that they did not support, the Democratic Party did not support efforts to overturn Roe v. Wade by a constitutional amendment. So it was simply a a very soft endorsement of the status quo. And that was an attempt to navigate uh, between uh, one group of Democratic Party activists who strongly supported abortion rights and another group that did not. But over time, that soft commitment to abortion rights became hardened. And so another moment came in 1984 uh, with the selection uh, uh, of the Democratic Party nominees selection of a pro-choice uh, Catholic feminist as uh, his uh, running mate, that is, uh, Walter Mondale chose Geraldine Ferraro, and um, because she was Catholic, but also very vocally pro-choice, that in turn um, set in motion a, a debate uh, between a number of Catholic bishops and a number of Catholic politicians over whether a, a Catholic candidate could be pro-choice, and that's when you began to see a lot of the rhetoric that we, you were citing, especially with, with uh, Mario Cuomo at the time, governor of New York, uh, arguing that, yes, you know, he could personally oppose abortion, but then uh, publicly support abortion rights policy. And so and, and the final stage, I would say, took maybe not the final stage, but, but a later stage of this debate took place when the pro-life movement shifted its priorities from a human life amendment to uh, its immediate priority of trying to change the Supreme Court. And because that uh, judicial strategy required a, an alliance with the Republican Party, uh, a much closer alliance than had been the case before, it became much harder for uh, pro-life Democrats. And in the early 90s, there still were a lot of pro-life Democrats in the United States, about a third of the members of the House of Representatives in, in 1992 who were Democrats were uh, pro-life by the standards of the uh, by standards of pro-life organizations like the National Right to Life Committee, 
but uh, it became very hard for uh, pro-life Democrats to really retain the support of the movement uh, and the support of their party if the pro-life movement's major strategy was uh, if if that if its major strategy centered on uh, supporting conservative judicial nominees, and so by the end of the 20th century, while there were still some pro-life Democrats uh, in Congress, it was a rapidly vanishing species. And of course, today uh, the the numbers of pro-life Democrats in Congress can be counted. I, think on one or two hands it's uh it's a very small number yeah actually uh, the last major attempt to insert a pro-life plank into the democratic platform was by the shrivers uh in 1992 sergeant and Eunice shriver who were not persuaded in that initial meeting to become pro-life and as, as you know um Eunice shriver was a was especially an advocate for those with disabilities her whole life um Looking at the the lead up uh, to to Roe v. Wade, there's like a lot of people say, well, the evangelicals didn't really enter the movement until later, and there's there's multiple different ways of looking at that because uh, there's a very good historical argument to be made that that evangelicals after the Monkey Scopes trial. Um, and their treatment in the national press sort of voluntarily decided to retreat to their enclaves and live separately. They just wanted to be left alone. Um, there was the massive failure of prohibition and then the monkey scopes trial, which persuaded them that they, they just wanted to essentially uh, live in their own communities and not engage in politics, which was a thoroughly dirty business. And you even have evangelicals uh, who would later become prominent political figures express precisely that opinion. People like like Jerry Falwell, who obviously very much changed his tune later. And so uh, when the evangelicals were mobilized to some degree by Roe v. Wade, but uh, to some, uh, you know also by events thereafter, they were obviously recruited by by a number of different people who who sparked their passion on that issue. Uh, how would you characterize, based on your research, the evangelical entry into the abortion fray? Well, I think... It's important to um, avoid misconceptions on both sides. One of the problems with this historical debate is that it's become so politically polarized. So there's one, you're probably familiar with the different positions on it. One position uh, that has been espoused is that uh, evangelicals didn't care about abortion. Maybe they were even pro-choice, if you take one extreme version of the argument, up until uh, the end of the 1970s when... They decided, based on hearing some things and reading some things from Francis Schaeffer, that maybe they would join the movement, right. um, and that they were all, and that the Christian right developed not at all because of of Roe, because of other things, but then uh, opposition to abortion was gra- was grafted onto uh, the Christian right movement later as a uh, maybe even as a smokescreen uh, for their real interests. So that that's one extreme version of the argument that I think is wrong. Uh, another extreme version. Uh, is that uh, evangelicals were not really involved in politics, and then Roe v. Wade happened, and they were alarmed, and so then they entered politics. And it was because of opposition to Roe v. Wade. And I think both of those stories are are uh, incomplete and mostly mostly incorrect. Uh, so the story that I would tell is a much more complicated story, and it's a story that uh, recognizes that Protestants and and Catholics thought about abortion in different ways in the 20th century, though neither group was comfortable with it. 
But Catholics in the mid-20th century heard a lot of teaching from uh, the pulpit, that, that is, their priests giving homilies, would often talk about birth control and, by extension, abortion uh, in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. And so they were, and so Catholics had uh, in their minds a very clear sense of the idea that human life began at conception, that human life should be protected, and that both contraception and abortion were wrong. Uh, no group of Protestants, whether mainline or evangelical, had that sort of teaching in the mid-20th century. That doesn't mean that they approved of abortion. Occasionally they would write against abortion, but it wasn't it was not a major subject of commentary in the uh, evangelical press in the way that it had been uh, in the way that it was among Catholics. So then the the abortion debate began in the 19 entered the public consciousness in the 1960s. It had been occurring before this, but but most people who were not uh, reading medical journals might not have been aware of that debate before the 1960s. But then in the 1960s, state legislatures were debating this, and so evangelical Protestants had to decide how to respond and evangelical magazines like Christianity Today took a very cautious stance on the initial abortion liberalization bills. And the reason they took a cautious stance rather than, than simply condemning them was because it was, first of all, they hadn't really given abortion a lot of attention before that. Secondly, they did not have a clear theology as to when human life began. Uh, there was a general view among evangelicals that human life uh, in its its uh, prenatal stages should be respected, but there was not a clear sense as to exactly when human life began. Did it did it begin at conception? Uh, Catholics might say yes. Evangelical Protestants might answer that with a question mark in the 1960s. And there was also a widespread tradition of exceptions uh, for abortion, and that that might uh, that that might justify an abortion, and so. Certainly for most evangelicals, that would include, in the 1960s, uh, a woman's life being in danger. But a large number of fairly conservative evangelical Protestants also saw the possibility for exceptions for, for other cases. So both Carl Henry and Billy Graham believed that uh, abortion could be justified in cases of rape and incest, and that was a very common position. And so the initial liberalization bills did not seem necessarily to be a threat to traditional Christian understandings. It was only when the when states like New York uh, and three other states in 1970 legalized elective abortion that a number of uh, evangelical Protestants, including the editors of Christianity Today, began mobilizing, uh, again, began speaking out against uh, abortion. But even then, they rarely joined pro-life organizations, partly because they had not had any tradition at all of cooperating with Catholics. And all of these pro-life organizations, would, for the most part, were uh, were run, were dominated by Catholics. And so then it was shortly after Roe v. Wade that a number of evangelical Protestants began forming their own Protestant uh, organizations, or in some cases, uh, cooperating with, uh, in, with Catholics in national pro-life organizations. Uh, but even then, in the late 1970s, they didn't necessarily see abortion as a worse evil than some other dangerous societal trends that they saw, like the sexual revolution. They saw an entire uh, moral revolution uh, and cultural revolution in the 1960s that they were very concerned about. And so uh, when they spoke about 
the pro-life, when they spoke about the abortion issue in the late 1970s, they tended to see that as, as part of this, as just a symptom of a larger societal decay. And so their solution to that was a, a particular brand of Christian politics that was somewhat at odds with the traditional Catholic uh, liberal human rights vision that had grounded the pro-life movement before that. So eventually the pro-life movement and the Christian right movement converged, uh, but they they had different starting points. So what do you think, uh, like when you look at your book, Defenders of the Unborn, I, I don't think when the book was published, any of us would have predicted that um, abortion would be the animating issue of, of, of the 2020 presidential election, which it very much looks like it's going to be. Um, with with sort of the Democrats uh, camping out on the most extreme position they, they possibly can at this point, um, and, a, and another Cuomo further expanding abortion rights in, in New York uh, as a little blast from the past there. Um, so what do you think your book, Defenders of the Unborn, uh, can tell people today that they'll find helpful in not only contextualizing where we are, but even uh, perhaps in giving us an idea of how we can broaden the tent and build bridges? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think that what I would like pro-choice people to get from the book is that pro-life activism is not necessarily a product of conservatism. It was not originally a product of conservatism. It is not something that has to be associated with uh, conservatism today. There's no intrinsic relationship between the two. In fact, um, I would argue that that pro-life activism is rooted in a philosophy that accords much more closely with traditional liberal views, uh, that is, the New Deal, Great Society, liberalism of the mid-20th century, than it does uh, with mid-20th century American conservatism. And so if if we can recognize that, perhaps there can be common ground there, especially when we realize that the pro-life movement was not formed as a backlash against women's rights, as unfortunately I think so many uh, advocates of, of, a, of abortion rights today uh, would see this. For pro-lifers, what I would say, they should take from the book, is that uh, liberalism does not have to be the enemy. And if it has become the enemy, perhaps it's partly because of choices that the pro-life movement made, as well as uh, other choices the pro-choice movement made. I, I don't think that the Democratic Party's abandonment of any even token support for the pro-life position uh, is something that was inevitable. It was something that occurred over uh, a fairly long period of time, that is, over the course of a couple decades, um, because of a number of decisions that were made on both sides. And so perhaps if we could revisit those those uh, decisions that were made, uh, perhaps we could find places where the conversation broke down, uh, and then perhaps uh, we could try to rebuild that conversation. And, and in particular, one of those one of those areas where I think pro-lifers could um, extend an olive branch to the other side would be in recognizing that the original pro-life movement believed that protecting fetal life in public law often needed to be accompanied with help, even governmental assistance, for women facing crisis pregnancies. And so if pro-lifers could, at, as they're passing restrictive abortion legislation in places like Alabama, Georgia, Iowa, uh, Ohio, elsewhere, 
uh, if they could couple those abortion restrictions with ex- an expanded state health insurance program, right. uh, expanded state social welfare benefits, I think that they would at least change the conversation. Now, they may have ideological reasons for not doing that, uh, but I but I do think that uh, there might be some lessons from the pre-1973 pro-life movement that could change uh, the direction of the abortion debate in the United States if people on both sides are perhaps willing to revisit their assumptions and even revisit their current actions. Yeah, I, I've been thinking for a long time that pairing a, pairing a harpy bill, for example, with with maternity leave and a, and a bunch of things designed to alleviate um, the burden of childhood in a country where people simply don't have the safety nets of extended family and church community that they once had, or that you could you could assume they had fifty years ago, would go a long way towards alleviating legitimate concerns, at least about um, ensuring women would have the resources they need not to raise children in poverty, um, which I think should be a, a, a goal of of the pro life movement. If reducing the abortion rate is the primary goal. Um, for the last question, I'm going to uh, perhaps ask you to speculate on something. I don't know if you'll want to, but I'm going to give it a shot anyways. Um, when you look at at the, the broad sweep of American history, you can look at, at roughly three civil wars. At least that's what the argument that I'm going to make. Um, you have the American Revolution, where, where more loyalists fought uh, for the uh, the British side than Americans fought on the side of the revolution. It was a it was essentially a war, but what it meant to be an American: are we British North America? Are we this new thing? Then you have this second uh, civil war, right? The American uh, Civil War between the North and the South over whether or not uh, slavery was uh, acceptable. Um, and, of course, the role of states' rights as well. Uh, and then the third uh, civil war, which is also an identity crisis and is, of course, primarily an ideological one and not an actual physical military civil war, which is, is the civil war about abortion. Um, do you think that it can be qualified as, as, a, as a civil war? And, and then the second question would be, do you think that Roe v. Wade overturning, despite the fact that the uh, abortion activists are so terrified of this outcome, might actually ease the pressure off of this debate and allow, um, well, as- essentially detoxify the political environment and prevent the ongoing polarization that seems to be um, seizing America at the moment? Well, uh, so two-part question. I'll try to try to answer both, I guess. Uh in terms of whether it's a civil war that, of course, obviously it's it's not the same type of war as our American Civil War or our American Revolution, thankfully. We mm-hmm. hope that it never becomes one, yes. though there have been people who have suggested that it might become that. I, I hope, hope certainly that they're wrong. Um, we have had very heated debates about things in the past in the United States. Uh, certainly debates about African-American civil rights uh, have been heated. Um, and there have been other policy debates that have been heated. There is, I do think that abortion is different from some of those policy debates in the sense that with every other issue that we've had in the United States that has been a, a matter of great polarization, and certainly in the 1960s, one could say that race relations were a matter of great polarization in the United States. Maybe even today, we're getting back to that point, unfortunately. But uh, in those cases, you can usually see a clear trajectory of the way the debate is going to be, the way that the debate is going and the way that it's going to be resolved. And 
abortion is unique in that sense, in that over the last uh, 45 years of polling on the issue, we've seen almost no change. We've seen minor fluctuations at times, but the general uh, trajectory has been a complete flatlining of the polls. That is, approximately the same number of people uh, are strongly opposed to abortion today as were opposed to abortion in the 1970s, and the same is true in terms of those who would identify as pro-choice. So we're, we have not been able to reach any sort of societal consensus on this issue. And in view of that, I do believe that returning the, the issue to local control, while it has not been the pro-life movement's primary goal and certainly hasn't been the pro-choice movement's goal, uh, might be a way, as you suggested, of easing the pressure uh, on the debate. Uh, the, the only problem that I see there is that Roe v. Wade has become a symbol of such enormous importance. Both sides in the debate believe that the that far more rides on the outcome of Roe than really does. Right. That I think repealing, rescinding Roe would set into motion a counter-reaction that would be far more uh, heated than anything that we have seen so far. Um, really? So I think what would happen would be, and that people have already suggested this, would be an immediate attempt, if Congress is under Democratic control, to first of all repeal the Hyde Amendment so that you could provide abortion funding at the federal level. And secondly, I think perhaps, and this has been suggested even in the early 90s, pass a national statute legalizing abortion. That would then set into motion a counter-reaction. So in other words, I don't think people would simply accept a state's right solution to this. Um, I think it would be better for a country in terms of politics if they did. Right. So I think what would most likely ease the pressure on this debate, though the debate would still simmer on, I don't really see a resolution in sight, um, would be what I think Chief Justice John Roberts wants, though it's impossible to read his mind for sure, but I suspect what he would like would be to see gradual chipping away, uh, gradual chips away at Roe, which we've already seen, um, without necessarily fully undercutting the decision. Uh, but regardless of what happens, I think the outcome is actually, uh, the out- outcome uh, is more or less assured of greater, uh, of a greater divide at the state level between states that essentially allow for and, and fund abortion and those that try to discourage it. So even without Roe being repealed, there are a number of states, uh, about half a dozen, that only have one abortion clinic. And, num- and those states, along with numerous others, do not provide uh, state funding for abortions. And of course, federal funding uh, for abortions is nearly non-existent. And so, but you contrast that with states like New York and California, that have expanded their abortion legal availability, uh, that have even tried to restrict the rights of, of pro-life clinics, offering alternatives to abortion that have that certainly provide state funding for abortion. And so already, even with Roe in place, uh, at least nominally in place, there is a great divide between uh, the availability of abortion in, say, Mississippi or North Dakota and the availability of abortion in New York City or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. And I I think, regardless of what the Supreme Court does, 
that's likely to continue. And that also, I think there's probably nothing that the pro-life movement could do in the short term to achieve what was the real goal in the 1970s, which is to provide national protection for human life from the moment of conception onward. We simply reached a stage in this country where uh, the the abortion debate appears to be at an impasse. Uh, there's there's likely to be no substantial movement uh, on on either side, but growing tension uh, in response to any perceived possible changes in the status quo. Well, on that cheery note, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it was my pleasure. appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Daniel K. Williams, professor of history at the University of West Georgia and author of Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us again next week. And if you want to check out other cutting-edge commentary on social issues, go to lifesightnews.com. You can find all of the previous episodes of this podcast at lifesightnews.com as well. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.